Welcome, everybody, to the next edition of the American Shoreline Podcast. I am the co-host of the show. My name is Peter Ravella. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host of the show. And, of course, we want to take a quick minute to uh, think about our former president, George H.W. Bush, who passed away uh, on Friday evening. Uh, Peter, uh, being here in Texas, uh, we have a special connection with the former president. It's, uh, you know, it is a th- important to mention on the show today, our guests from Washington, D.C. will be getting to it in a minute, Howard uh, Marlowe and Dan Janolfi. Uh From D.C., uh, President Bush is lying in state at the uh, Capitol Rotunda, I think, beginning today, Howard, and uh, will be interred in Texas A&M University, my alma mater, on Thursday. He was a great president, Howard, and welcome to the show. And Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, um, this Howard here, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on the network with you. Um, for the past 35 years, uh, we have been involved with helping communities get their issues, uh, their coastal issues advocated here in Washington, D.C. So we're based in the nation's capital. We're just a few blocks from the White House and a few more blocks from the Capitol, so right in the center of things here. And basically, on our podcast, we intend to be talking about uh, the latest in water resource policy news, as well as current events uh, affecting the nation's water uh, infrastructure. Um, We'll bring you all of the news from Capitol Hill, White House, Corps of Engineers, other federal agencies, Uh, Plus, we'll give you our award-winning analysis, things that we've been known for for years. Truly. Uh, So so you know how these breaking uh, developments affect you. We really are about providing solid information, helping our clients who who are local governments primarily, engineering firms and the like, see how they can then turn that information into something that uh, will be good intelligence for them. It's a special day for us on the American Shoreline podcast, welcoming our next and first engineering firm to sponsor on the American Shoreline podcast, TI Coastal Services out of Wilmington, North Carolina, led by a great coastal engineer, Chris Gibson. TI Coastal, Wilmington, North Carolina, a firm that has specializes in personalized services on dredging and coastal and beach community uh, shoreline management. So for all you ports out there and small towns trying to handle beach erosion, Chris Gibson and TI Coastal Services is a great group. And I can tell you from personal experience, Chris's work is creative. They're very attentive to the regulatory considerations that come into play on these projects. They work for affordable solutions that uh, work for coastal communities. So for those of you in the southeast United States on the American shoreline, TI Coastal Services with Chris Gibson, TICoastalServices.com. Right. So... You know, right off the bat, I need a quick announcement here for for our listeners that we are super excited to have Dan and Howard 
uh, hosting a show from the nation's capital uh, on all things coastal coming out of the federal government policy realm. And guys, uh, this will be, you, your show will be such an awesome addition to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. There are uh, local officials and uh, pro- coastal professionals from around the country that have been reading the water log and been uh, taking in your analysis and using it to uh, to the to, to their benefit for for a long time now and it is just awesome to have you guys on ASPN with this new media of podcasting I am really looking forward to it and it's just great to have you on our flagship show today to introduce you to our audience uh, this is just a real special treat so uh, thank you guys for joining us today and uh Tell us a little bit about, obviously, I'm sure our listeners are probably, most of them anyway, familiar with uh, the Waterlog newsletter and the website that y'all uh, produce. Uh, how is the? How do you foresee the podcast kind of fitting into the, the tapestry of analysis and, and insight that you already put out? Howard has a really unique experience for working with the Corps of Engineers for over 30 years. I come from a, a background with engineering, as he comes from the policy side. So we make a really unique team um, where my background is engineering, sustainability. Uh, I'm a lifelong surfer and a coastal advocate. And so uh, my goal is to provide insight uh, from the engineering side, whereas he comes from the policy side. And uh, we, we put together a, a really a really great uh, newsletter. I think we, we do make a good team. And part of the thing, one of the, one of the main things we want to talk about is, uh, like we said, the core, uh, the unlikely move to DOI, DO, <clears throat> excuse me, DOT, that's been mentioned by the president, uh, the 2019 core work plan that just came out, the winners and losers, the Water Resources Development Act is always an extremely important authorization bill that comes through Congress every two years. We're definitely going to be speaking to that and the new things this year as well as what we're going to be working on over the next uh, two years for the next Water Resource Development Act. And, and most important right now is the na- the National Flood Insurance Program has just been extended for seven days until the end uh, or until the, the government shutdown, which is on December 7th. Mm. Um, I, might, I might say, if I could butt in here for a sec, you mentioned uh, the uh, funeral of uh, the late President Bush. Um, Oddly enough, that may extend the time that the government uh, has before it uh, shuts down. So it's possible that there'll be extensions of extensions. Hmm, huh. uh, and that includes the extension <clears throat> of the shutdown. Um, so we want to bring that kind of insight. Uh, there are a number of things that go on. I think people need to understand, and uh, Dan tries to convey in the, uh, and does it very effectively in the uh, newsletter, that um, you know, who's in charge of the Corps, for example, is not necessarily the chief of engineers. It's the assistant secretary of the Army and the Office of Management and Budget and the kinds of impacts that can have on people. So it's having those kinds of insights into the details that can give people some idea of who they should be talking to, who they should be thinking about, uh, and why things are happening the way they are uh, in Washington that affect their communities and their businesses. Yeah, absolutely, Howard. And I think having your experience and judgment as part of uh, the network is absolutely fantastic. And I join Tyler in uh, 
in expressing our excitement for it and also our appreciation of it. Because I can tell you from someone who works down at the local level, uh, it gets a little foggy when you start thinking about what goes on in Washington, D.C. and the very complicated world of not only congressional appropriations and project authorizations and the statutes that, Dan, that you mentioned, WERDA, NFIP. I'm not even sure how the core work plan process works now. I think it's in modification. Uh, But here's what I do know. There are billions of dollars that come out of Washington, D.C., and having someone guide us through the process and keep up with that is an amazing service for the listeners on ASPN. And uh, Howard, I think your professional experience, I mean, in all the time I've been working on the coast, uh, your name has been a big part of the conversation over the decades that I've... Can I uh, ask a question, though, Howard? Uh, You know... I, I too, when I started working with Peter, he like one of the first things I did was uh, get on that water log, and um, I, your name came up. But I am curious. We ask this of all of our guests, and, and uh, Dan, you already mentioned that you're a surfer and that you're uh, you have that engineering background. But Dan, uh, Howard, what did you ha- do? You have a connection with the American shoreline. Uh, how did you find yourself in this line of work? What's your history on the American shoreline? Well, it's all of an accident, and I, um, I think one of your previous guests, uh, Paul Komar, uh, talked about accidents and how important they are to uh, careers. Uh, basically, my experience uh, in uh, what the coast uh, was um, lying on the beach, watching uh, people surf and go to the, to the beach. But I got involved with it uh, by accident uh, because uh, uh, somebody in the city of Venice, Florida, uh, told me that uh, they were having trouble with the federal government. And we're going back here. You know, Lord knows us said about 35 <laughs> plus years. Yeah. And uh, they said they were having trouble getting something into the president's budget and uh, we're just needed help. And I said, okay. And uh, basically, whenever somebody asks, uh, can you handle this? The answer in anybody who's starting out in business, which is what I was doing at that time. Was, right. Oh, yeah. I of course. <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I, I was fortunate to have a lot of good mentors along the way and, and to uh, be able to read a lot, but to use that mentorship uh, to find out what was going on and how that could be, um, how I could help that community out. And from there on, mm-hmm. I decided, well, you know, it's a great life. Uh, you know, I've always liked being at the beach. Now I can tell you that, uh, quite frankly, between you and us and all the people who are listening, I really don't like going to the beach because I'm always thinking about erosion when I'm at the beach. <laughs> it's but wrecked I, it for I me, too. That and just close my eyes and listen to the sound of the waves. Well, I tell you, it, that's absolutely true. When I go to a beach now, I my mind gets active. I start looking at what are the accesses, what does the parking look like, are they charging, How's, what's the condition of the shoreline. What are the services like? I mean, it's going to work. And, and, you know, you do put your feet in the water, but you're you're just working. And I'm looking at the dense, who's here? Where are they from? The whole economics of the shoreline. That's what you have. That's what happens when you become a beach professional, Howard. And True. I, I left the country to go visit a beach in Mexico. <laughs> and it was my wife who started out by, as we were walking the beach, she said, oh, this area is eroded. <laughs> You've wrecked it for her, too. Yeah. <laughs> she's, now she's saying it. 
Uh, Howard, I'm very interested in, in, in your handicapping. You know, y'all mentioned the possible shutdown and the implications about uh, former President Bush's funeral this week on that process. Is it what's the word up in D.C.? Is it does it feel like a shutdown is coming our way? What are you guys getting off the wire? Well, the federal agencies have already been preparing for a shutdown. Uh, I would expect that now that Election Day is passed, that control of the House starting next January 3rd is shifting over from Republicans to Democrats, that there is really nothing for at least President Trump to lose hmm. uh, if uh, he insists that he gets a deal on his border wall right. funding. Yeah. Uh, and... If he doesn't get that deal, shut it down. Wow. Now, do understand that there are just a few agencies, including the Corps of Engineers, whose budgets are already passed, and they, right. they will not shut down. So we have so, how many of the spending bills? I don't even remember how many are there, and, how, and a chunk of them have been passed. You're, I've heard well, that. Well, it's, it's only about three or four out of the 12 uh, that need to be passed. So we have a large part of the government that will shut down. Huh. Wow, you know, I thought it was saber rattling, but I, I've guessed everything I've guessed about what the administration is going to do has been 100% incorrect. So if I'm thinking this will just pass, it probably is not the case. Uh, but if we go into a, a shutdown, like you're saying, the Corps of Engineers is funded. This the work plan, as I understand it, from the Waterlog uh, uh, newsletter actually last week. Uh, $6.7 billion in the core work plan for 2019. Is that the right number? That's correct. Uh, that's actually, well, we're focused mostly on shore protection when we look, when we do look at the core plan, the work plan. Uh, that figure is about where it was last year. Okay. Which uh, is far less than the $6.7 billion. I think we always have to remember that, uh, unfortunately, the coast is at the bottom of the list. Still. Of categories in terms of funding, hmm. what is it about 175 or so uh, million, million, not billion dollars? Right. So we don't hit uh, even a you know, small piece of the pie. It's not that good, but you know you hit a, a fifth or so uh, of, um, hmm. of the total budget, and you haven't even gotten close um, to what uh, you know shore protection is getting, uh, and our needs are greater than uh, than what we're getting. That is uh, un is. Absolutely how it feels at the local level. I was reading um, an article that we posted on Coastal News Today about the town of Surf City, North Carolina, uh, affected by Hurricane Florence. The city to the south of them, Topsail Beach, is in line for FEMA recovery dollars under public assistance because they had an engineered and maintained beach. Uh, the city of uh, Surf City lost 350,000 cubic yards, replacement cost somewhere around, I think, 11 to $15 million, and very light prospects for federal assistance there because they didn't do what local governments need to do, and that's take on the problem themselves and have a managed shoreline. I mean, is any of that changing, Howard? Are you seeing, what are you seeing in the federal role Ensure protection. Are we going in a direction for a greater federal presence or a lesser federal presence over time? Lesser, if I had to answer that in one word. It's uh, a changing role for the Corps of Engineers, I think. It's not something that is being done with any thought. But I do think that uh, the role of the Corps is shifting 
to providing more technical assistance, planning assistance, uh, not financial assistance. Now, this is true also in general with water resources, because what you're seeing is that if you can uh, pay to play, uh, you're going to go to the front of the line. Is what we always feared okay. is going to happen. Going back uh, a couple of administrations ago, and this, now this has all been, you know, bipartisan. It, it goes back to Bill Clinton days, and and all the way along, we've had this issue. Uh, basically, what uh, we've seen that administrations have favored policies, which they sometimes tried to implement themselves without Congress agreeing one way or the other. Uh, and that is, if you can put up some of the money, some more money than you're supposed to put up, if you can put up all of the money, well, Lord knows they will, you know, speed up permits. All of these mm. provisions in the water bills, the Water Resource Development Act, which say uh, give advantages to people who are able to put up money, mm. non-federal sponsors. No, you're referring to you're referring to local entities that are local and state entities that are financial uh, partners with the federal government? Is that is that really? what you're referring to? Yes, I am. If a local government can put up more money, then they're going to be able to get uh, that project built. Uh, it would surprise your listeners, I think, to know that absent that uh, disaster bill post-Sandy, uh, there has not been a new federal shore protection project, beach nourishment project, term that I prefer, used, uh, initiated since uh, 1996. Man, you know, that is a Uh, stunning, that's a stunning statistic. It's been a long time. It's it's impossible. (laughs) And if it weren't for the fact that we've had uh, storms, not just Sandy, but all the others that have come along, uh, we would have no real shore protection program in this country. That's frightening. Uh, so I think that's, that's got to be a real concern. While local governments can say, well, at least I've got my money, they got to understand that should we go through a period where we have three or four or five years where their area does not get hit by a storm, then they're going to be out of luck right. in terms of getting funding because – there's just a small number of projects that are actually getting funding. There have been five category four or higher storms that have hit the U.S. territory in just over a year. We, we've got to, you know, be really concerned about what is going on. And, and, and also take a look, uh, if I can filibuster here for a moment. Yeah, go ahead. There are areas where hurricanes don't always hit. In fact, may never hit the Great Lakes or uh, the California coast, which have really been forgotten in the uh, federal program. Uh, they, you know, it's going to be something that we're going to be talking about as we get along in one of our podcasts. I think that's a great topic, uh, Howard. You know, uh, I, I, I probably the first thing that struck me when I started working in uh, the coastal space as a son of Southern California was how much money, federal money, went to the Southeast, the Gulf Coast, even, this was in the wake of uh, Sandy, even in the Northeast, and how, uh, you know, in my, uh, in my native uh, Californian eyes, the, the greatest shoreline in America was, was not getting 
the big federal dollars. And it was perplexing, but I do think it's part of that storm um, complex. And and Howard, I, I want to circle back to this trend of, you know, sh- federal shore protection pro- projects diminishing. And what, what, and I understand that it's a very small piece of the overall pie, but why is that happening? Uh, especially in light of, as you mentioned, stronger storms, climate change, sea level rise. I mean, every single podcast guest that we have on brings up these topics. And why is it that administration after administration, it's not a Donald Trump thing. This this has been happening for, goodness, I guess it's fair to say decades now. (laughs) Why is this happening? Because coastal resilience is not a number one issue in this country. So what is? Like, where is the money actually going now? Like, what, what well, are it, it, it goes to people who need it or areas mm-hmm. that need it. Uh, you've got the ports that need to be dredged or deepened to accommodate ships. You've got the inland waterways. You've got uh, dams and levees that are very much needed. Yeah. You know, whenever you have a, sh- a, a, a pie that doesn't grow, then you have people who start to say, well, why are they getting more than we are? Or why are they getting even as much, as little as we get, let's say. And um, you have to be able to understand that we start from a different place. And that is local governments, state governments need to become more active advocates for coastal resilience in their region. Uh, we are not going to have a national coastal resilience policy hmm. in the United States in the foreseeable future. We should have a national coastal resilience yeah. commitment. That would be great. If we had that, then it might encourage the kinds of things that we're involved with through our, our firm and, and through Waterlog and other efforts that we have, which is to try to uh, get regional collaborations going. People don't realize that they really do have power, but their power is often when they collaborate, when they get together in coalitions, whatever you want to call it. Right. I think that's going to have to happen because if we want to take a look with envy at other parts of the water resource community, I think they've been far more effective in doing that. And I say that without any disrespect to uh, right. American Shore and Beach, which Not I think has done a fabulous job. It, you know, I was involved with it for many years, and I think they've done, a, you know, just a great job. But I, I think it has to be doubled, tripled. And I think, uh, you know, Derek Brockbank uh, and Tony Pratt from ASBPA would certainly agree. Yeah. Well, I do think that the political organizing organization or the political uh, power structure that has been built around federal water resources spending is maybe outdated now. And I, I completely agree with you that over time, this broader regional uh, focus is essential and a much more active and integrated local community presence in the process from you know the beach towns to the counties and at the state level. And th- it's a bit incoherent, uh, Howard, and in trying to put these projects together over the years, uh, you can see that there's there's room for an organized evolution here on how federal shore protection planning happens. And it, uh, it sounds like that's what you're going to be working toward, hopefully. We are working towards that. We're working 
in uh, the state of New Jersey. We're working in the Great Lakes. We're working elsewhere to uh, form these collaborations that at least from the bottom up uh, take uh, the initiative to take a more sensible systems approach to things. Yeah. Well, the risks are getting higher. The costs are absolutely going to go up. Um, it, you know, over the long run, it concerns me a little bit about, are we prepared to take on the issues that are coming our way as a country on the American shoreline? Um, if you look at the system now, I think, like you're saying, we've had flat federal investment, no new federal beach project since 1996 is stunning. That's 22 years. And with very limited opportunity for that to even change, I mean, the needs are getting bigger. We're closer to the water. There's more infrastructure and value on the American shoreline. And yet our programs have been static for almost a quarter century. Well, as, as Howard mentioned, the pie remains the same size, yet the portfolio yeah. is, great, is, is growing every year. Last year's disaster supplemental, which funded the additional programs outside the work plan, was three times the core's the core's actual work plan, which is wow. around seventeen million dollars. Seventeen billion dollars. Uh, coastal resilience is expensive, but what's even more expensive is paying for these disasters. It's better to pay up front for mitigation, which can save sometimes five to seven times the cost of paying for a disaster after it has already occurred. So Dan, Dan's raised a very uh, good point, also that. You have to look at beach nourishment as one part of what coastal resilience is. So not everything is, you know, building a beach. Uh, it's one part of the uh, solution. And uh, it's good for most areas. It may not be a long-term solution for some areas. It may be, you know, a 25 to 50-year solution um, in other areas. So uh, and helping people be able to plan for how they want their region to look, what they want to do. Do they want to raise homes? Do they want to move homes back out of harm's way? Those are decisions that are very difficult to make. But, Peter, you've worked with local governments a lot. And, yeah. you know, empowering local governments, putting tools in the hands of mayors and councils to be able to make those decisions, I, I think is uh, what's very important to us. And on the core side, when you have... Uh, studies that are perhaps underfunded, and we'll get into this more in, during our podcast, but take the New Jersey Back Bays uh, study, for example. Their initial recommendations were in, mostly based on hard structures, and they were expecting about an $18 million appropriation. Of course, that was going to come in pieces, but the amount that they've received is, is far less than they imagined. And so they're the proposed designs were mainly hard structures. Hmm. Now in this, in the work plan we have now, they've gotten a little bit of funding and they're able to now take a look at some of those natural and nature-based features, which is what the state and what the locals had really desired in those plans. So we'll get into that more during our podcast, but it's really important that some of the studies be funded to include the desires of what the non-federal partners want. Boy, you guys are going to have a, just a show chock full of, great discussion topics and and boy we're excited to to hear what you guys come up with on the waterlog podcast i've got another question for you uh but first i want to pause for a quick message from our sponsor dune doctors out of pensacola florida dune doctors is a dune restoration and uh, dune consulting company uh, they're fantastic at what they do 
uh, go to dunedoctors.com to learn more about their services. All right, guys, uh, I want to know what it's like. Now, what you were what you were describing there earlier is that the supplemental is like three times larger than the uh, the actual core budget, the work plan. Now, how do when you're walking through the halls of Congress and you're talking to congressmen, women, and staffers, is are they satisfied with this way of doing business? Or is there is I mean, because to me as an outsider, it seems just absolutely crazy. But is this you know kind of uh, a result of just the way that our federal government works? Is this kind of the preferred way of doing things? Well, it may be the American way, I guess, of uh, reacting <laughs> rather than planning ahead. Um, one, they've taken themselves out of the picture by tying their hands on earmarks. Um, the president earmarks the Corps' budget. Uh, the Congress can't do that. Congress said, uh, has told itself that, oh, no, you can't do that. So, in essence, what's happened over the years has uh, been harmful to the coastal community because really the champions that we had uh, in all states, uh, the coastal states, used to be able to stand up and say, I want my project funded. And um, mm -hmm. while there are pluses and minuses to that approach, the fact of the matter is that they knew that they had skin in the game. Right now they have a press release in the game. Hmm. If they get funded, they can issue a press release. Right. They don't get funded then. And, oh, okay. Uh, I know my folks are going to be unhappy about it, but you know, wait till next year. We'll come back at it. Yeah. Uh, that that makes it really hard. The core <clears throat> is in the only agency that I'm aware of where the president earmarks project by project, study by study, exactly how much money is going to each project and study. Wow. Core can't do that. And, and, and uh, the Congress can't do that. I apologize. So what happens is that Congress simply adds a chunk of money to that and says, well, you've given an inadequate amount of money for huh. shore protection, using their terminology. You've given an adequate uh, for uh, investigations for water navigation purposes, for example. And uh, then they turn it back over to the administration to decide who gets that money. Hmm. So, yeah. uh, and they try to write some directions, and we'll get into this in another podcast about the difficulties of being a member of Congress. But really, uh, you know, they try to write some directions of what they really want the administration to do, but they really can't earmark anything. So, right. in, in, in the end, it's up to, and listeners are going to be surprised about this, but there's really, for the Corps of Engineers and the Coastal Program, there's really only two people who have any control. Final decision making. Okay over what goes on, and neither one of them is elected. They're both bureaucrats, and uh, they career people. Yeah. They have their own agendas, and uh, they get their way. Hmm. And you want to name who that is? I'd say not the chief of engineers, right, but the assistant oh, secretary of the, the Army? Of engineers, not the assistant secretary. It's uh, two folks over at OMB, and we'll, we'll save okay. naming them All until right. All right. pot, uh, further <laughs> podcast. Do you, well... It, boy, that is such an important fundamental thing for people to understand. And there are there are problems in every form of governance and every particular approach to making decisions. Uh, and I remember in the old days where, you know, the budget concerns and earmarks was highly suspect and 
not appreciated. But what it does, Howard, and I think what you're alluding to is the direct representation of shoreline communities around the country where their elected representatives could define the need, bring it to the table, work through the priorities in a public system with elected officials. That, you know, maybe there's the smoke-filled, you know, backroom deal sort of criticism of that. But on the other hand, how else do you find champions and people who are intimately familiar with the you know, the, the tens of thousands of miles of the American shoreline. I, I kind of think it was the better way. I mean, you, you worked under both systems. What do you think? Oh, it is the better way uh, in all parts of the government, not just in the area of the core, mm-hmm. because members uh, start working with each other. You bet. And, uh, yes, if they're saying, well, I'll vote for uh, this bill if you'll put in this particular yeah. thing for my constituent, yeah. That's how it's now, designed. With the core, with the court, you can't just put in something you thought about today. It, it has to be an authorized study. Authorized by whom? Authorized by Congress. It yeah. has to be studied for years. It has to be um, then authorized for construction. By whom? By Congress. Right. Uh, all of those things are checks and balances that, uh, that, that make it something which is going to be not going to be put in there unless it's ready to be studied or ready to be constructed. So Absolutely. it's the kind of thing which is not going to make the kind of headlines to say, oh, look at the bridge to nowhere or the teacup museum or whatever it was. Right. This, is, this, is, this comes down to accountability, is you have a member of Congress who's willing to speak up for one of these projects. When you have particular individuals at uh, OMB who are willing to defy the, what Congress has specifically requested in provisions, that's when you have an issue. It happens and, all and the time. Again, we'll get into this in uh, content for another for another podcast. But of that's course. exactly what we had in this in this year's work plan: huh. is pro- uh, provisions in congressional bills that are asking for projects or studies in particular regions, although they can't earmark. But Congress has Congress has made a clear point in the language, and by the time it makes by the time the work plan makes its way up to OMB, things are different than what Congress mm. wanted. And that oh. will, con- will continue to be an issue until your marks are brought back. Well, I and can- just a reminder to our listeners, uh, we do we have uh, just put out a blog on earmarks that Howard wrote. And many of the figures that we're tracking in terms of uh, core work plan dollars for shore protection funding, we track those things throughout our waterlog uh, blogs. And how do, you, how, do you get a, how do you get on the list for the waterlog uh, blog, Dan? Uh, go to waterlog.net. Uh, we have a subscription link, or you can email either of us, and we can give you guys your emails to to post on your website. And uh, this is really a great uh, tool to to get. Um, I I actually the Dan the the piece you wrote on sea level rise and why it's different in different parts of the. Uh, globe and explaining that was so well done i shared that with my dad and he thought it was great i mean my dad is like not anywhere he's a doctor he's not interested he's not a coastal dude professionally but uh he found that to be so clear and this is that you guys deal with really technical federal policy stuff but you make it accessible and clear and it's just it's it's a great way to be kept abreast of what's going on so yeah. If you're looking for your inside the beltway kind of 
newsletter. Couldn't recommend it more highly. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, sea level rise uh, throughout the world is actually uh, I- I- interesting the way it works. I know that surprised me when I first learned that mm-hmm. things like subsidence and uh, ice melting that can actually have, in many ways, the opposite effect that you think where yeah. uh, icebergs and uh, polar ice can actually pull water towards them. Therefore, if you're closer to uh, the Arctic, you may actually see uh, you know, a decline in the, uh, the level of sea. And sea level rise, and, yeah. you know, you'll see less than that. It was fascinating um, to read that. It was a very detailed analysis, and and uh, it, it, I tell you, Dan, I ended up spending a couple of hours going through the studies that you cited, and trying to teach myself a little bit more about this uh, sea level rise issue. Um, and for the folks out there, uh, I think the point is real simple. It, it, it when the bathtub rises, you think, well, every coast in the world is going to get a little bit. Uh, you know, a little bit more water. That is absolutely not what happens. It's you think, how does that work? Well, Dan, that was the work that you did, and in that story, and part of what waterlog is so great. Um, the other thing I'll say about the waterlog, and this is important for the local government officials out there, um, we come across the attitude a lot when we're working at the local level, where folks say, "Well, we're just going to get a federal project. We just, you know, we understand there's a problem. We know we don't want to raise taxes locally. That's too difficult. We don't need to get involved in this planning." The Corps of Engineers does all of that, and it paralyzes communities as they face these very uh, challenging issues when they think there is what I call it, it's the pennies from heaven argument. We are just going to sit here and suddenly out of the sky will rain down upon us the millions and millions of dollars we need as a state or a county or a local community to tackle this shoreline problem. And I don't know if that was ever true, Howard, but it ain't true now. No, it, it, it really hasn't. And, and what really is important for uh, local folks, and what we try to do uh, through our business is to help local communities become real partners with the core. Uh, very often the kind of partnership that the core is familiar with is uh, you sign the check, we'll tell you how we're <laughs> going to get you to the destination that you told us you wanted to be. But we'll tell you how we're going to get there and oh, if we have to change the destination somewhat, it's all because of our rules and so forth and so on. Right. Well, there's ways to be uh, better partners with the core than that. And, and I yeah. think that's important, uh, Peter, to be able to be a real collaborator with the core, to be able to say, no, I don't want this. We've talked to one community in California, really not sure that they want a 50-year shore protection project. Mm-hmm. But they do think that there are other ways that they can get resilience using sand. Uh, and, and those are things that they want to explore. Um, a lot of times they're reticent to... Uh, tell the core that this is what we want. We don't really want you what yeah. you're going to be selling us. Right. Um, so I think that's important uh, for uh, podcast listeners, and that's what we're going to be talking about, empowering them, people providing enough information in people's yeah. hands so Essential. that they can not only write their member of Congress, but also how they can deal with different federal agencies, the core particularly. Well, it's it's Corps of Engineers 2.0, or let's say local sponsorship 2.0 or 3.0 by now, that the thinking that people have in terms of the options that they can pursue, what the locally preferred 
alternative approaches, all of those uh, critical decisions are changing now. And I think what you're saying makes sense to me. The the local communities have to uh, move forward in understanding how to connect into this federal system, this very imperfect federal system that we've built when, when it comes to resiliency. And I'm now I'm starting to understand broader why that word is necessary in the dialogue. We're not we really have to open ourselves up to a broader thinking of what does resiliency mean. And uh, boy, I tell you, there's a lot to talk about here, you guys. This show is not going to be out of topics. <laughs> the Waterlog Podcast. I, mean, you could, whew. I mean, you start talking about resiliency, Howard. I mean, what, what, what do you think should be included in that topic if you were looking at federal resiliency spending? What do you think would possibly be on the table in that universe? Well, I think we look at, at the at the basics. It's, you have to look at uh, all the tools in the toolbox, and, and they range from uh, hard structures, which can be useful in some areas, mm-hmm. to soft solutions, uh, to uh, the green nature, nature-based solutions. Uh, you've got uh, all of those, obviously, those tools uh, and those techniques the science is there. Uh, yeah. We haven't uh, had enough experience in this country uh, with a number of the um, nature-based features right. to see how they work on our uh, varied coastlines. But I think um, some of the money that uh, we're spending needs to go into them. And some of the NOAA grants uh, coming through, the states uh, are providing funds for some experimentation in that area. And that's very interesting. Um, Resilience, so it, it means what uh, the local community thinks it needs to mean. So it could very well be that you're going to have to certainly raise homes. Right. Uh, you know, that's already being done in a no- number of areas. People who aren't doing that are ignoring the reality of flooding. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, something which uh, gets people out of harm's way. And I think, right. uh, obviously, that means some version of the dreaded word retreat, and I don't like to use that word because yeah. you can only retreat from the coast so far. You really have to be able to get people some level of comfort where they are now before they can start thinking about where am I going to move out of? You know, yeah. how far are you going to retreat? Yeah. They, you know, it, where are you going to go? Now, yeah. the coast is always going to be attractive. So I think right now we look at all the things that uh, collectively and, 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 and collaboratively, not only uh, amongst local governments and state governments, but also with the uh, with, with the key players in the environmental movement and the business community, these all of these folks, uh, all of the scientific community and the like, yeah, uh, the academics who are at work in this area, we've got so much knowledge. We know the techniques. We just have to be able to put that to use. Well, it is. It reminds me of the. The hardest thing about everything you just said is really the politics and the money. When I think about shore protection projects, or just take the example of a beach nourishment project, there's four things you need. You need you need an engineer to design it, a source of sand, a permit to move the sand, and the money to pay for it. And to figure out the strategy to come up with the funding or to work through the complex political equations that were in every one of those things you defined as resiliency is where the real mastery 
comes in being successful on the American shoreline. Um, you know, we have a podcast that will, Michael Poff will be doing on uh, the podcast for building better beaches and engineering show. Dan Martin is talking about our relationship with development along the shoreline on his show, the next gen waterfronts, you know, that draw, why we're there, how are we going to adapt, how we value, that, how we value, but it's the, it, and I don't think there's anything pejorative about saying, understanding and mastering the political universe of decision-making on the American shoreline is the critical skill at the end of the day. Almost everything else is knowable. This is the place where it's, it is absolutely handcrafted now. The level of skill required to conceive of and move a project through the process is stunningly well, high. Can, and can I jump in on this too? Um, I think that what one of the interesting things that's emerging, and I mean, this is not news to anybody who's worked in the, in, uh, the coastal area for any long period of time, but, you know, our coasts are all interconnected and we are, uh, our sand sources are connected to our waterways. Then the sediment is connected to the continent. So there is, a, you know, local control does have its value in determining how local communities wish to manage their specific situations. But there's also a really important place yeah. for central control here. And this is where what y'all are covering with the waterlog and inside the beltway, I mean, the, our, our federal government's duty to the American shoreline is to help communicate and crack the code of interconnectedness. What goes on upstream is going to affect the coast, whether you're pumping in ag runoff, whether it's uh, whether it's sediment that is not being allowed to naturally uh, get into the waterway and then make it to the shoreline because it's dammed up or whatever the case may be. It could be a fisheries concern, but the these uh, coastal economies and ecosystems and communities for that matter are much more uh, interconnected with the mainland and and with the with the heartland of America than just the the local coastal municipality right you know you're absolutely correct uh, you know our ports and waterways are some of the basis for our economy and they are connected and it's one of the things that we're working on in, in throughout the mid-Atlantic with the Corps is trying to promote uh, collaboration that brings together the systems and the different pieces that are involved in the in the watershed or sometimes as we refer to it as the coastal shed is how all the sediments mm. move in between waterways and back bays and coastlines. Great. And when this all makes its way to the federal government, simply put with, with the current climate, is if you're not working with somebody on this, you're just a local government, you're you're at a competitive disadvantage because as I mentioned previously, the the pot is not getting any bigger, right. and so to fight for that money is is a is a growing challenge in 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 uh, in our government nowadays. It is, and I think that uh, something we always have emphasized is exactly that: uh, the local community has got to get a handle on it in order to be in the conversation. There's no guarantee in this thing because the pie has not gotten bigger federally. Uh, but it takes a lot of work to engage with the Corps of Engineers. I've always thought of them, Howard, as a little bit, maybe because I never cracked the code, but I always feel like it's a great mystery what happens inside the Corps of Engineers. And there's some sort of black box thing that happens. You talk to them, you, you sign a local cooperation agreement, you get into the process, and then 
chug along, turn some cranks, turn in there that you don't know what's going on and out pops something that you might like or might not. I've, I've never really gotten a handle on how they make decisions. I mean, I hope you guys can, yeah, can just, help. Uh, can help our, uh, we'll be discussing that. <laughs> really a large part of my, my life uh, has been spent one learning about that process and then learning about the places that uh, local interests, state governments, as well as local governments, need to intervene uh, to be true partners and that to have a, mm-hmm. uh, a real impact on what comes out at the other end. It's not uh, unlike but, catching the wave. You got to drop in at the right time. <laughs> and that takes, that takes <laughs> knowledge of knowing how to, knowing the system, knowing how the decision-making process works. And uh, of course, uh, managing local budgets. Why, you know, you can't, you know, unfortunately, there's a limited bandwidth to participate in that system. So I think that that, I think our listeners are going to find that, uh, that, that discussion on the Waterlog podcast to be especially interesting. I know I will, because like Peter, I, I can't make heads or tails out of, of oftentimes what's happening there. And boy, I turn to the Waterlog all the time for, just, you know, boiling it down, turning it into something that I can read and, and soon to ASPN, you can listen to some of this analysis too, but I, it's super useful. We're looking forward to uh, doing the podcast on the network and thanks very much for the opportunity. All right, Howard, Marlowe, and Dan Janolfi, thank you so much for joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast. And uh, guys, Thank you very much. Uh, hope you found today's content enjoyable and informative. And we'll certainly have a lot from you uh, for you coming on our next podcast uh, with another update. Well, I personally want to welcome you guys to the network. I think it's going to be a bedrock show for all the local communities up and down the American shoreline, uh, knowing what's going on inside the Beltway and inside the very complicated world of federal uh, water resources spending is uh, there's a, not a lot of people out there who can crack that nut and i think we've got the two best people uh so thank you very much howard and thank you very much dan for joining us and we really look forward to your show coming down the line <laughs>